when people realize that there are different ways of telling the same story, right? The same objective set of events can be narrated in a variety of ways, and that those different ways of telling the same story might make a big impact on their mental health, that's often a really important shift that people experience. Hi, everybody. My name is Doug Barr, and it is a pleasure to welcome you to the St. Helena Forum for Innovation and Creativity. The Forum is an educational nonprofit with a mission to inform and entertain, and we hope inspire by presenting artistic performances and exchanges of creative and innovative thinking on a wide variety of humanities-based subjects. The Forum is an all-volunteer organization, and if you're interested in becoming a member, please visit shforum.org. Today, we're going to be talking about something as old as humanity itself, storytelling. Humans have been visually or orally telling stories since at least 30,000 BC. We use stories to define ourselves and to make sense of the world around us. Stories teach and they entertain and they inform and they persuade. Stories as epic poems, myths, fairy tales, sermons, or sonnets are all art forms in themselves. We'll hear a couple of stories told today to illustrate how you can better present your own stories. And finally, we'll talk about innovative new therapies in which stories are being used to heal. Hosting today's program is forum board member Michael Merriman. Michael is a graduate of Cornell University's renowned School of Hotel Administration. He directed the California Cafe Group's 32 wine, spirits, microbrewing, and beverage programs. Michael was the senior vice president of marketing and identity at Jackson Family Farms and Obon Klimat Winery. Everyone, please welcome Michael Merriman. Thank you, Doug. I came to the realization that I could tell a good story rather indirectly. I never gave it much thought. I just did it. One summer night, 20 plus years ago, I was having a social evening with a bunch of fellow restaurant industry folks. We had been invited up to the home of a Napa winery owner, and over the course of the evening, we all shared stories from our experiences. As the evening wound down, our host, the winery owner, who had listened to us all with rapt attention, turned to me and said, Michael, I wish that someone could tell me how to tell a story. Up until that point, I'd never given the art and craft of storytelling much thought, let alone thinking of how to teach someone else. We're fortunate today to have someone with us who has made storytelling her life's work, Margot Lightman. Margot is an award-winning storyteller, a five-time Moth Story Slam winner, a public speaker, a teacher, and best-selling author. Seek out her book, Long Story Short, the only storytelling guide that you'll ever need. Margot and I have something in common. We both did time in Ithaca, New York. She, a graduate of the Ithaca College Theater Arts Program, and me at Cornell University. Welcome, Margot Lightman. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, let's jump right in here. Um, most of us have a fear of uh, public speaking. Um, how do you get your students started uh, with, with storytelling? I first assure them that they're not boring. I think people think they have a fear of public speaking, and it's often because they think that no one wants to hear what they have to say. So we do a lot of exercises to pull stories out so everyone can realize just how interesting they actually are. And that it's not that they're boring. It's more that they're numb to their own life experiences. 
and that they just kind of not really thought about them as unique or different. But once we kind of start doing these exercises to pull them out and everyone's like, oh, wait a minute. Oh, and then that reminds me of this. And that reminds me of this. And then it starts rolling and then the confidence is up. That's great. What, what, uh, how do you, how do you go through the elements of a story and, and tease uh, out the, uh, the story in a, in a logical pattern so that the story isn't boring? So we go through a lot of exercises first to cultivate what story a student would work on. Uh, and what I look for is to make sure that there's very simply an arc, a beginning, middle, and end. And on top of that, the big thing I look for is if there is a change within that storyteller in some way, like if the person has become, had a different feeling about whatever the story is about from the top to the bottom, or if they've made a decision by the end. And that's how I help people choose and structure a story. So then the story is built around the change, basically, and how can we frame it from who you are at the top and who you are at the end. And then I have varying ways to, uh, I have options of how to end stories as well, which is anything I can do to avoid the storyteller telling us what they've learned or what their moral is. I do do everything I can to avoid that. Right. Well, my feeling is that storytelling uh, is not like joke telling. There's not the big socko punchline. Um, And and often storytellers, in in my experience, uh, they seem to be, uh, hurrying to get to the conclusion. Uh, how do you avoid that? I mean, that also comes to confidence is that they think that people are bored, so they don't want to hear you get there, right? And what we don't realize is that we always care about the journey rather than the ending of something. Otherwise, we wouldn't watch five seasons of a show to figure out the mystery or or write, read the whole book. We just skip to the last page, right? So it's really a confidence thing as a person goes, well, no one wants to hear what I have to say. So you have to build that confidence and understand that you just have to tell that middle part that it, you have to stay on track. You have to avoid too many tangents. And if you can figure out that middle part and make that middle part juicy and interesting, then we'll care about the destination. But no one really cares about the final product. We, hear, we care about how you got there, the rise to that. Sure. How do you, how do you color a story and, 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 and people the story with characters without uh, getting too complicated? Uh People put in way too many characters. They think they want to tell a story about an office. And because there were five people that worked in that office, they think they have to introduce all five people in great detail, even though the story is only about you and one other person at the office. So it doesn't matter that there's three other people there. You don't have to introduce or waste time on them. Who contributes to the story? Who are the big characters that further the plot of this story? And Cut everyone else, or I often say condense them into one person so it's the boss. Maybe you had three bosses, but you can condense them into one composite character, the boss, that is throughout that story. I mean, film and television do composite characters all the time to make things clear. That's great. Um, in, in storytelling, uh, we're, we're talking about uh, a performance, whether you're performing live on stage or whether you're talking to uh, a group of people sitting around the coffee table. Um, 
How does storytelling differ from the written story? I use the example of um, Garrison Keillor and his stories from Lake Wobegon. Um, they're, they're fascinating when you're, when you're listening to them and in the moment. And then when you read them as transcribed, the, they're entirely different. Yeah, I've struggled a lot with that. Um, I came from a performance background and my first book I did was a memoir. And a lot of those stories were based on live stories I had done. And I truly believed I will print out the scripts for my live stories and staple them together. And then I will have a book. <laughs> and the book was this thin, you know, and what I didn't realize is that there's many things and what you're talking about with Garrison Keillor as well in the intonation or a look on your face that can be, portrayed in an oral story but when you're on the page first of all no one knows what you look like no one knows how you feel you can't say uh the house was all gray then we know you don't like gray but if you if you say the house was all gray on the page no one knows how you feel about that you have to write and gray's always been my least favorite color it reminds me of boring afternoons at my grandmother's house or whatever that is you have to spend time on that so that is a big thing if people come from a performance background to kind of wink and nod or do any sort of intonation you have to articulate that and things like my size for example i'm very tall i'm almost six feet tall and so when i'm on stage you can see that and see that with that comes a certain way, you know, life experiences or, you know, my date walked in and he was five foot four. You would understand that that is something different than on the page. I would have to say, oh, by the way, <laughs> I'm this much tall. You know what I mean? So it's, it's, it's complicated. So I struggled tremendously with that. And what I found is that the stories for the page ended up in the end being much longer and more descriptive. Uh, which is my very long-winded way of saying that. <laughs> so, so when people are when people are preparing to tell a story, um, it, is it important that they 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 script it word for word, or is it better that they just put together bullet points that they have to hit to move the move the story forward? You know, everyone's process is different. I like to say. Don't improvise, don't memorize, meaning don't get on stage and just talk with nothing because you will speak very, for a, and I have seen it, you will speak for a very, very long time and not know how long you're talking. And if you memorize a script, you come off as very stoic in a way that it doesn't feel like a story. It feels more like a, a presidential speech or something, right? So what I like, what personally I do is I write a script and from there I make bullet points after I've written down the script, I whittle it down to bullet points. There are people that go straight to bullet points with no script. But what I do is I look at that, those bullet points and tell the story from there so it becomes a map. So I'm going to start here, I'm going to end here, and I will loosely hit these points in between. But I know where I'm going with this. And that tends to work best, but I do write the script out first and then do bullet points. I for me, I'm a very uh, kinetic learner. I like to write and then it, I can really retain it. But some people, that's not how their brains work. And um, some people learn by listening to a story over and over again. Some I see people draw little story maps that are, you know, different brains than I have. So it depends on the type of brain that you have. 
So maybe, uh, Margo, this is a good time that we uh, show a clip uh, of a story that's told by a friend of yours, Rean Strober. Sure. Thank you so much for having me. It is such an honor to be here telling stories, which is the greatest thing to do in life. I spent a year and a half on the Broadway national tour of Les Miserables from 2000 into 2001. And this was before all the revivals. This was the original production, which meant it was big. And it had, if, if anyone remembers it, the stage had a turntable that spun in the middle of the stage. And then in, in Act 1, halfway through Act 1 and in Act 2, during the battle, the vague battle in Paris... These two giant barricades would come in and then the whole stage would spin and there were battles and it was epic. And um, I played the hair hag. Uh, so in act one, I bought Fontaine's hair. But in act two, all of the women were on the barricade for certain amounts of time. Some women would be on stage supporting the soldiers and then exit quickly, stage left, to get ready for the song Turning. Some women, a few women, got to stay on stage handing bullets to the men, and they got to stay on stage for one of the coolest parts of Les Mis when everybody dies. <laughs> it's a three-hour musical that everybody dies. So um, I was leaving the show after about a year and a half because they were transferring me to the Broadway production, and I wanted more than anything to die on the barricade because during this scene, what would happen was... Uh, you'd see the backs of all the, the actors and the, and the soldiers and the women, and you'd hear this boom, and you'd hear bomb, 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 and the actors would go into slow motion, and it was this slow motion death scene, and then everyone would fall, and you'd hear bomb, bomb, and the stage would turn, and on the other side of the barricade was Andros, the leader, and he was hanging over the back of the barricade with the red flag. Epic. So I, I begged them. I said, it's my last show. Can I die on the barricade? And they said, okay, sure, you can die on the barricade. Thinking, what could possibly go wrong? So there we were, um, act two. I wasn't going to exit stage left. I was going to stay and die on the barricade. And so everybody else exits and I stay. And I'm thinking, oh my God. This is happening. I'm going to die on the barricade in the Broadway production or on tour of Les Miserables. So dun dun, the music starts and the battle starts and, and I'm passing the bullets to all the soldiers. And I'm like, hey, this is so exciting. And suddenly you hear boom and the slow motion starts. And I decide if I'm going to die on the barricade, I'm going to do it center stage. So I turn around and I face the audience and I slow motion and I take all of my bullets because I'm dramatic in Les Mis. And I start to fall down to the stage and die downstage center. And if anyone knows the theater, downstage center is the most important place to stand. So it's the most important place to die. So I die slowly, bum, 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 bum. And I die on my stomach with my hands out and my body splayed. And all of a sudden I hear coming from off stage left. And I'm like, everyone's talking about my epic death. This is going to go down in Lema's history. And then I look around, I open my eye, and I see all the dead bodies around me bouncing up and down, which is the sign that everyone's laughing. And I'm like, was my death funny? I don't, 
I, I thought it was pretty beautiful and sad and tragic. And then all of a sudden, the stage starts to move because what happens is the turntable spins to show Andras. And I noticed at that moment, I had died half on the turntable and half off the turntable, which was a big no-no that nobody told me. I was too busy dying to think, maybe you should die on the turntable. So there I am with my arms in front of me on the stage and my body's on the turntable and the cast is laughing their faces off, but have to play dead. And the stage starts to turn. And all of a sudden, half of my body stays and half of my body is twisting. And I realize I'm this weird dead body that's now being dragged along the stage. And then I notice there's a big buttress, which was the wooden piece of the barricade jutting out from stage left that's about to slam me in the head. So anyone who saw this performance that night saw this miraculous thing happen where this dead body lifts up and then goes back down. Um, so needless to say, everybody uh, pretty much uncontrollably laughed for the rest of the show. And then a few weeks later, I was moved to the Broadway production in a similar role. And when I got there, uh, they didn't really uh, put two and two together. And they said, oh, just so you know, when you're doing act two, don't do the strober. And I was like, my name is Rena Strober. And I was like, what? And they go, oh, yeah, we have to tell people now don't die off the turntable because of some girl who died half on the turntable and half off the turntable. And I was like, that was me. I have left my mark <laughs> and the Broadway production of Les Miserables. And I still believe to this day, if you're going to die on stage, die downstage center. Just do it on the turntable. Wow, that was a great story. Yes, I perform with Rena very often in LA and we are neighbors. <laughs> so we, we talk on the streets all the time and then we also do a lot of shows together. So that's how we met. Yeah. So, so uh, what, what can you point out in that story that we just listened to, uh, to illustrate uh, the craft of storytelling? So a few things you can, she defines who she is as a character very early, which is that she's in this, production but in kind of a low level position which is defines where she is at so then you understand the stakes which is that she's trying to prove herself uh there's some fun self-deprecation which is hard to do because at times people go a little too far with it and it feels like is this person okay but she didn't do that at all uh she was good at with her self-deprecation um and then with her ending it's fun because she ends it and then has what I like to call a tag or a PS, which is that like, a, where are they now? Two years later, this thing happens. So, which I love because what I spoke about earlier is that a lot of people end stories with this big moral that they want to force down the throat of the audience. And there's other ways to do it. And one of the great ways to do it is, is do you have an update of the story? Do you have something that happened a little while later that you can call back to and connect us with. So for those things, I think she was very vivid as a character. She was really great with the self-deprecation um, and had a really great solid way of ending without being preachy about anything. You know, the way a lot of others might have ended that story would have been, if I had been confident in my place in this show, perhaps none of this would have happened. And now I see that I need to, and that's how I see it 
day in and day out of the way people want to end stories in that way. Yeah, I think it was great that she set the scene without overly complicating a very complicated stage. Right. I mean, I'm a theater person, so I knew what that was right away, but I can see how many won't, wouldn't. So, Margot, are there some pointers that you can give storytellers to uh, uh, things that they must do and things that they must avoid? I think that you must clearly define yourself as a character, clearly define what you want and what gets in your way. So at the beginning of the story, we understood who Rena was. We understood that she wanted to make her mark and die on stage. And then we understood what got in her way was... Uh, a lot of lack of experience with dying on stage in that manner and the actual stage itself. So for that, sh that we really um, could see that very clearly. I think those are three things that we really need to know. The fourth, I would say, is a universal theme to have in mind when you're constructing a story. Ultimately, a broad theme of what you think the story is really about. Is this about love? Is this about hardship? Is this about triumph? You know, so to keep that in your mind of a big, broad stroke theme to have a story be about. The pitfalls to avoid are, I would say, lack of preparation, which causes people to really speak for a very long time on tangents. I would say, uh, additionally, um, having a story being very, like, not universal and very self-indulgent in a way that you haven't thought about your audience at all. You just want to share share something to get it off your chest, but not, it, it, I don't know how to explain this properly. What I'm trying to say is that there's many people that are like, oh, I just went through this thing and I want to get on stage and talk about it. But they don't consider the fact that there's an audience there that also wants to be entertained. They more think about this as this is my therapy session on a stage and I don't care who's listening. And I always say that you still do need to consider that people are want to be entertained by your story, whether there's therapeutic aspects to it or not, which I'm sure there are. You do need to be mindful of the fact that people listening want to feel entertained by your story. So I think there's that, that sort of self-indulgence. And also I would say this um, lack of inclusivity in stories in a way of that it's only for, you know, a story that only a very rich person would understand or a story that only a very highly, you know, a person that went to an Ivy League school would understand or things like that, that, you know, like when people are like, well, the thing about Harvard is this. And people are like, I, I don't know what you, <laughs> you know, and your average audience member has no idea what you're talking about. Uh, I think that feels very exclusive. And I always say, try to lead your story with inclusive, not exclusive statements. That can be a big problem as well. Right. I remember from your book, you talked about uh, uh, the fact that you can alienate an audience by talking down to them and, and, and uh, putting in things, uh, features that they, they really didn't connect with. Yeah. And the other thing about the talking down to is I always say play to their highest intelligence. Don't don't dumb things down for an audience like we get it. We're, and if we don't get it, we'll rise up and try to get it. But don't placate to us don't make us you know like hold our hands through very obvious things let us think during your story and put things together ourselves don't spell it out so much i see that a lot too that that you just brought that up that makes me think of that as well yeah um uh how important is this is the linearity of the story does it does it need to 
march forward step-by-step uh, step without uh, any veering uh, off the, the, the progress? I have students that are much better at a nonlinear story than I am. I don't know what's going on with my brain, but I need to tell it linearly. And that's what I tend to teach. However, I have students that come in and I like their second story. They're doing cuts and flash too, and it works. So if you can do it, if you have a brain that can tell a memento style story and an audience can follow it, then you have a gift to do it. I'm not gifted in that way. I So I think it's up to the person's skill set for sure. But personally, I tell stories very linearly. That's great. Margo, I think we have another story from your friend Rena. Let's, uh, let's listen to that and we can talk some more. Sounds good. In 2010, I moved from New York City to Los Angeles with almost no money in my pocket. I had spent it living in New York City, working on and off Broadway, but it's a very expensive city. So I moved to LA to work on other parts of my career. And to make money, I became a musical director for an elementary school on the west side of Los Angeles near Beverly Hills. This wasn't my dream job as I spent most days uh, musical directing your good man, Charlie Brown, to elementary kids. So I basically was teaching them how not to face upstage and how to face out to the audience and mostly also figuring out which kid farted because I don't know if you've been around elementary school kids. For some reason, they're always farting. So... It was after a long day of rehearsal and I was just having one of those down moments that we have where I felt like nothing was really going right. I didn't want to be, you know, explaining to kids where their audience was. I just, I was tired. And so I thought I need a cheap pizza and a cheap glass of wine. This New Yorker needed a little taste of home. So I leave the, the school and I go find this tiny restaurant that had a big sign outside that said, happy hour, $5 mini pizza and a glass of wine. That's perfect. $5. I can do that. So I walk in, I sit at the bar and the place is basically empty. And I say, can I please have the $5 special? And the bartender is really lovely. And he brings me the little pizza and the glass of wine. And I'm just taking a breath and taking in my life when I notice there's a table of people way in the back of the restaurant and I hear a laugh and it, it sort of perks my ears up and I think, huh, that laugh sounds familiar. And then it happens again. And it's this big female, beautiful laugh. And I suddenly think, wait a minute. And I ask the bartender, excuse me, sir, is that laugh the laugh of who I think it might be? And he said, oh, yeah. Yeah, Carol Burnett is sitting back there with Tim Conway and, and Bob Newhart. And I forgot I was in Los Angeles on the west side. So this was probably something normal to most people. But it was not normal to me. Carol Burnett, who I grew up idolizing from Once Upon a Mattress and her years on television as a comedy icon with the, the laugh that will light up a room and change a life, was sitting in this restaurant laughing with her friends. And here I am at the bar and I think, okay, what do I do? What do I do? This, this could be a, a life-changing moment. And I think, I know, I'm going to send a bottle of champagne to that table. That sounds fancy. So of course I say, 
do you have a cheap bottle of champagne that I can send to that table? And he said, oh yeah, we have a $30 bottle of Prosecco, which is like a cheaper version of champagne. And I said, great, can you send that cheap bottle of Prosecco to that table? And you don't have to tell them where it's from and just say someone wanted to toast to them. So he does it and I see the waitress bring it over and I see them all cheers each other. And I'm thinking, oh my God, this is, this is incredible. So the bill comes and it's $35 plus tax and tip. And I give him my credit card and he says, I'm sorry, ma'am, your credit card was declined. Oh, oh my God. My credit card was declined. And I just bought this cheap bottle of Prosecco for Carol Burnett. Why is my life like this? So I had one more credit card in my wallet and it was my unemployment debit card. Now, for anyone who's ever been on unemployment, it's the money that the state gives you to spend on necessities like gas or groceries, and they put the money on a little debit card. I thought, okay, well, I have this card, and I gave it to him, and it goes through. I'm even able to leave a tip. As a former waitress, always leave a tip. And then I thought, you know what? Carol Burnett is a national treasure. The state of California should be buying her more expensive bottles of champagne. But this day, she was getting a very cheap bottle of Prosecco. So um, I pay my bill. And on my way out, I think, you know what? Go over. Go over. Just say something. And I walk over and I say, I, I'm so sorry to bother you. I just wanted, uh, Miss Burnett, I just wanted to say I, I, it, was honor to, it was an honor to get to watch you toast each other as I have been toasting you my whole life. I grew up watching you in Once Upon a Mattress. And that is why I made it to Broadway when I was 25 she said, Broadway, once upon a mattress? You're not old enough to know once upon a mattress. And I said, I'm old enough. I just froze my eggs. <laughs> and Tim Conway looked up at me and said, I got a freezer, kid. It was one of those moments that you're, you just can't believe is happening. So they made me laugh. I made them laugh. And at the end of the day, the state of California bought Carol Burnett. Tim Conway and Bob Newhart, a $30 bottle of Prosecco. And I got to say that I got to meet one of my icons and her laugh still stays with me to this day. Wow, what a great story. Yes, 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 it is. There's so, what I like in here, and there's something I didn't talk about yet, which is the point of entry in a story, which is when you listen to something and you can relate something really specifically from your own life into that. So I have multiple points of entry. Like I think that I moved to LA around the same time as Rena. Carol Burnett was my hero uh, as a child growing up. I live in Los Angeles, all of those things. So there was like this in many ways spoke to me on a very personal level because there are very many similarities here. But if a person doesn't have those similarities, then how can they tap into the story? Right. And I think it's about that having a hero thing and then what if you had an opportunity to meet your hero would you would you have the nerve to say anything or not and i many people have a version of that of that they didn't or that they did or that they did and they put their foot in their mouth or what have you and so i think that that is everyone has someone that they looked up to when they were younger and what would you do if you met that person feels like a great point of entry for for a lot of for a lot of us what I thought was so great is the story could have ended with her just uh, stepping up to the 
uh, to the table and uh, and meeting the the three participants, uh, including Carol Burnett. Um, uh, but I thought it was uh, very clever that she brought back the state of California as the uh, person that provided the, uh, the, <laughs> the gift. For sure. Yes, for sure. <laughs> and I think after the pandemic, many, many people were getting those cards. So I think there's even more people that will relate to that, with the amount of people that were on un unemployment over the past few years. So yes, for sure. For sure. What a, what a great story, and thank you for introducing us to Rena. Um, no one, one sort of final topic that we can talk about um, is that uh, my friends I know and many of your students, uh, judging from uh, elements in your book, um, many people think that they, they live a boring life and nothing interesting ever happens to them. And how can they ever tell a story that's interesting to people because I'm not an interesting person? How do you, how do you get people to get past that and see the stories in their lives? I like to do exercises that pull out what does a person deeply care about? And what I mean by that is like, do you really care about, like I have a friend that, really cares about getting discount airfare. And I have literally like my jaw has dropped with her stories of booking airline tickets and like what she went through to get the discount, you know? And, and that is riveting to me because she cares so much. And that's what I think it matters. It doesn't have to be the life or death situation. It has to be what do you deeply care about? Do you deeply, deeply care about cooking? I could listen to people talk about cooking that deeply cared about it. Absolutely. You know, do you deeply care about hiking? Do you deeply care about, is there something really dumb that you really, really care about that you feel very strongly about? So I just think a passion about little things makes a story interesting about those, th those things. And then that is, can, can take anybody who thinks they don't have an interesting life and, and, make them soar. So I do a lot of exercises pulling out the dumb things that people care a lot about. <laughs> well, I, I certainly, I certainly thank you for joining us today. Uh, this has been just uh, very educational for us all. And you've given us some really, really great points on, on how to find stories in our lives and how to craft them and, uh, and share them with others. Um, the, the, the one uh, little uh, tagline uh, that I'd like to add is uh, from our, our friend Rena, who ends her emails with, I hope every day becomes a story. Absolutely. I, I agree with that completely. And I always say, you know, I, my favorite saying is most events in life can be boiled down to either a good time or a good story. And that's pretty much the two categories. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, thank you again. Thank you so much. We're so pleased to have with us our next guest, Dr. Jonathan Adler. Dr. Adler holds a master's and a PhD in clinical psychology from Northwestern University. In addition to being a practicing psychologist, his research and teaching at Olin College in Massachusetts focuses on the stories that we tell of our lives, how we define ourselves, what he calls our narrative identity. Welcome, Dr. Adler. Thank you so much. It's such a pleasure to be here. Great. 
Um, we've been talking with, uh, I believe, your friend Margot Lightman about the art and craft of storytelling. Uh, we hope with you we can explore a little bit of the science side of our theme. Great. That sounds fun. Can you, can you tell us why you brought storytelling uh, and your story slam project to uh, your work at Olin College? Oh, sure. Um, so my interest in storytelling really grows out of my interest in identity development. Um, as a psychologist, my research really focuses on the ways in which our identity continues to develop over the course of adulthood. And one of the best ways of studying a topic as broad as identity is to think about it in terms of a story. So we really think about identity as the story that you tell about your life, the way you make meaning of the experiences that happen to you. And as both a psychologist, but also as a theater person, I'm always interested in the ways in which not only we can analyze the stories that people tell about their lives and, and get some generalizable scientific understanding about them, but also the way that experience actually lands in the real world, both for storytellers and for their audiences. Um, so it's been a great opportunity to do both sort of the science of storytelling, but also really do put on storytelling programs. Has that become a fabric of the college? It really has. So Olin College is a very unusual place. Uh, it's a very small college, very selective, and we have a very high touch admissions process. So after candidates um, sort of make the first cut on paper, there's a very high touch on campus in person part of admissions. And every year, um, my colleague Jillian Epstein, who's our writing initiative specialist, and I, um, we put on a student story slam um, where we work with students over several months to tell stories about key moments in their lives. And we do that as part of this on-campus admissions process with the goal of really sharing that Olin has a storytelling culture that even though the students primarily study engineering, that they still need to be developed individuals that whatever the work is that they're doing, there's a them that's doing it. Um, and that working on their sense of self is a key tool that they're going to need in becoming excellent at whatever they do. And then in the spring, we also put on a community story slam where the student stories are paired up with faculty and staff stories. So we really embrace the way in which the whole college is a learning organization where we're all growing together. Well, that's that's very exciting. Um, it, does the local community get invited to these as well? You know, that's interesting. We have certainly had um, outsiders come to the to come to the story slams. The, the student story slams are entirely aimed at a, an audience of outsiders. So candidate students and often their parents or families attend them. The other ones, um, sometimes we have community members attend, sometimes not. Um, but I I am involved in other kinds of storytelling efforts where we try to marshal the scientific literature on narrative to produce programs for the general public. That's great. Um, can you can you tell us a little bit how this this storytelling drifts into your uh, clinical psychology and how you help people with uh, uh, with problems that m may need some steering? Sure, absolutely. Right. So I'm a clinical psychologist by training, and I, I'm really interested in the ways in which the psychotherapy encounter 
really is a project of revising your sense of self. So whether you are coming to treatment for a very particular problem, you know, uh, like a, an elevator phobia or something, or you're really there to try to work some big stuff out about the arc of your life, whatever the tools are that you're working with in psychotherapy, the process can be really understood as one of self-revision. So I'm always interested in attending to the ways in which my clients are narrating their lives, what kinds of themes are really supporting their well-being and which ones might be getting in the way. Um, and using a variety of therapeutic techniques, trying to help them find their way to a revised life story that will really better support their well-being. You talked uh, in one of your papers about identity theft and who tells your story. Can you explore that a little bit? Sure. This is the project that I'm working on right now, so it's still in its earliest stages. Um, But I'm really interested in this idea of who's the narrator of your life, right? Many of us, especially those of us who grow up in American or Western contexts, tend to think of us ourselves as sort of the star of our story, as the main character in our story. And indeed, in many ways we are. Um, But the, the real picture is more complicated than that. So all of us are born without words, let alone stories. And so we grow up as a character in a story that is narrated for us by our parents or caregivers. And over the course of childhood, we learn what kinds of things count for our stories, what kinds of things ought to get storied, and also different ways of storying our lives, so that by the time we have the cognitive maturity to be the narrator of our own lives, which usually happens in adolescence and early adulthood, we've learned how to tell the story of our lives. But this idea that there are co-narrators of our lives is actually much more common than you'd think. So in this project, I'm looking at cases where very unusual sort of stark examples of people who lose narrative control of their lives. So, for example, um, someone who's been wrongfully convicted of a crime that they didn't commit. They know themselves to be innocent. The world has a story about them as guilty, and they have to navigate this world um, that has a story about them that doesn't align with their own story. Again, these are sort of extreme cases where someone has actually lost control of their story, but the extreme case illustrates something much more mundane, which is that all of us live in what people in my field call a narrative ecology, right? We live in a world of stories, stories that are out there in the world, but also also the stories about us that our family or friends or coworkers tell about us and how we're, we're always navigating that experiences as we grow. Do you find that people um, change once you get them to focus on uh, their life as a story? Do you find that they, they, they really uh, change their uh, thinking about th- themselves once they put it in the frame of a story? Yeah, I think two things. One is, again, from a developmental perspective, children don't have the cognitive sophistication to be um, mature narrators of their lives. That's really a skill that we have to learn. But we forget, we don't think about it as a skill that we have to learn, like reading or math or something like that. 
And so often just the revelation that you are not only the main character in your story, but also the narrator, sometimes that revelation is deeply empowering for people, realizing that, yeah, while none of us are completely in control of the things that happen to us in our lives, we are largely in control of the story that we tell about those things. And so, yes, sometimes just that insight alone can be transformative for people. And then to take it one step further, when people realize that there are different ways of telling the same story, right, the same objective set of events can be narrated in a variety of ways, and that those different ways of telling the same story might make a big impact on their mental health, that's often a really important shift that people experience. How do you get people to go to to prevent people from going down the rabbit hole of poor me and this all happened to me and I'm a victim of it? Yeah, absolutely. So we always want to meet people where they're at in telling stories of their lives, right? This is really an ethical endeavor. Um, It's one where we try to meet people to support them, to help them find their way to better stories. But it's not actually therapeutic to hand people another version of their lives, right? They really need to find their way organically. So um, in the work that I do both clinically, um, but also I work really closely with this nonprofit organization in Cambridge, Massachusetts called Health Story Collaborative, where we work with medical patients to help them tell the story of their experiences with illness and healing. So often in that kind of encounter where I'm really there to intervene in someone's life story, I first try to meet them where they're at and try to understand the thematic contours that they've already adopted. And then just start to ask curious questions about whether there are alternative versions of that story. Sometimes we might ask leading questions to try to poke at a particular theme. So the way you just storied that experience, I think of as sort of first low in the theme of agency. So agency is sort of the quality of the main character in the story. Are you in the driver's seat of your life or are you being batted around by the whims of external forces? And again, no one is actually in control of everything that happens to them. So this is this is really how you tell the story. Um, and low agency stories tend to not work so well for people from a mental health perspective. And the other aspect of the version of the story that you just offered I would also call contamination, where whenever good things happen, they end up bad. Um, And we know contamination is very bad for people's mental health when it shows up in people's stories. So I might try to engage with those two narrative themes um, and see if we could just open up some alternatives, uh, different ways that we might understand those same experiences and hopefully partner with the individual to help them find their way to different kinds of narratives, whether that's higher agency or sort of the flip side of contamination we call redemption, where bad things turn good, right? All lives have good and bad in them. So contamination or redemption is really just about where you draw the chapter breaks, where you make connections between things and shifting where those chapter breaks land can make a huge difference for people's uh, people's mental health. Speaking of chapters, when you're working with people, do you go back and say, now what is the next chapter or is there an epilogue here? Yes, we definitely. So we think about 
so, so the the jargony term for this is called narrative identity. The idea is that the story that we tell about our lives constitutes our identity. So we think about narrative identity as weaving together the reconstructed past, the perceived present, and the imagined future, right? So those little modifiers are there because we know from basic research on memory that we're not particularly reliable reporters about the things that happen to us. We're always interpreting our experiences. And narrative identity weaves together the way that we reconstruct the past, perceive the present, and also imagine the future, right? Narrative identity points points forward. And we know from some empirical research that I've done, that other colleagues have done, that we use the stories that we tell about our lives today as a foundation for supporting our mental health when new things happen to us in the future. Um, can you can you give us an example of uh, not just a, a Joe Average person and their narrative identity, but uh, one of your uh, one of your clients, without revealing anything personal, um, that may have had uh, a, a, a very traumatic uh, incident in their life, and how that uh, gets processed. Sure, absolutely. Rather than use one of my clients, I'm actually going to use someone that I worked with really closely on a case study paper. I met her without any understanding that this is where things were headed, but. Her story and the way she made sense of her life was so richly compelling that I actually decided to write it up and publish it in a in a scientific journal with her partnership. Um, so all of the details that I'll share with you are already sort of out there, out there and people could look up the article if they're interested. Um, the person's name that we use in the paper is called Samantha. Samantha um, was born to immigrant parents, you know, sort of a, a first-generation American. And when she was two, she had a um, really severe virus that they thought was going to kill her um, and left her deaf. But nobody knew for two years, right? So she had immigrant parents who did not speak English and the people in her, you know, various daycare settings just assumed like many children of immigrants, she was having trouble learning the language. Um, right. So no one really understood what was going on, but she was actually rendered deaf in both ears. And she eventually discovered this. Um, but her way of coping, uh, you know, the, the deafness was experienced as very shameful. Um, no one in her world really helped her understand that she could have a full, rich, thriving life, even though she was deaf. Um, and so she had a lot of shame about that experience. And her coping strategy was a very adaptive one. She tried to be as good at school as she possibly could. Um, and she was very successful at that. She went to a, she got into like a magnet high school for math and science. She got an undergraduate degree in engineering. When I met her, she was actually a postdoctoral researcher um, in engineering education. She had a very successful career. And she was on the verge of getting cochlear implants that would allow her to hear. And one of my colleagues came and said, you know, there's this postdoctoral researcher. She's deaf, but she's about to get cochlear implants. You got to talk to her. And I sort of thought like, OK, like that's not really what I do in my work, but I'm ha this sounds interesting. I'm happy to talk to her. 
And when she talked to me, she said, oh, I understand why our colleague thought that I was on the cusp of a huge transition in my life. But actually, that transition has already happened. She said, I grew up as a hearing person who couldn't hear. And I'm about to become a deaf person who can hear. She had had this experience growing up where she was treated as a hearing person, both from her own impulse to not feel any shame around her deafness. Again, she didn't get good scaffolding that there was nothing shameful about being deaf. Um, And that she just adapted to that world. She lived as a hearing person, but she had this big challenge. She couldn't actually hear. And then over the course of her 20s, she came to meet other deaf people. She had this one key moment in her life where she met a deaf college professor of engineering. And that was just an eye-opening experience for her, that, that there could be people for whom smartness and deafness didn't have to be incompatible. And she started on this journey to really owning her identity as a deaf person. She started taking American Sign Language, even though she was a very proficient lip reader, had been very, you know, successful in her life. And she really started to come into her identity as a deaf person. And then once she really understood herself as a deaf person, she thought to herself, you know what? There are tools out there in the world that deaf people use. And I've been working really hard at things like navigating academic conferences where voices come from all over. um, And maybe one of those tools would actually make my life easier. So she decided to get cochlear implants. I interviewed her right before, uh, like a week or two before the surgery and then about a month after. um, And she talked about this way in which she had transitioned from being a hearing person who couldn't hear into becoming a deaf person who could hear. And the way, in her words, she had really shifted from a, a, um, an experience of shame to an experience of grace, where she really was able to embrace all the different parts of her and live in the world in a different way. And I just thought this was a remarkable example of someone who had navigated a huge identity transition in her life and that the process of making sense of her life story had richly enabled her to live in the world in a, in a fundamentally different way. That sounds like she, she uh, despite having uh, been given tools, she really did have control of her narrative identity. She really did take control of her narrative identity, indeed. I think she felt like she grew up in a world that didn't offer her narratives that would actually support her, um, that she grew up in a world where her deafness was something she had to hide. Um, but that once she came to see it as a key part of who she was, it opened up a new way of being in the world. Um, on, a, on a different note, would you like to share with us a little bit of your theater work? Sure. Thank you for asking. Yeah, I'm at a funny moment in in the arc of my theater life. So I've been into theater since elementary school, but always as sort of a a hobby or or side thing that I did. Um, Like most people, I started as an actor, but I hated acting. I find it incredibly anxiety provoking. Um, And I found my way into directing, which is something that I've been doing ever since. I find that it relies on the same skill set that I use as a therapist, as a researcher who's interested in personal narrative, right? I'm really interested in the way stories unfold and the way to help them unfold, you know, in the sort of most compelling way. 
So I have had I have a very unusual academic job at Olin College where I'm a psychology professor, but I can also direct plays. I've gotten to teach um, interdisciplinary team taught courses with a theater professor. So I'm teaching one this semester for the third time called Constructing and Performing the Self, where um, the students learn the, the scientific literature on identity development, but they also write monologues about key moments in their lives. And then we produce them as a fully staged play um, as sort of the capstone experience of the course. And in the last few years, I've also found myself in a new role uh, as a playwright. So right now, um, I have teamed up with a theater professor at Boston University named Jim Potosa, who's lifelong, you know, theater professional. Um, and we have co-written a play called Reverse Transcription um, that's actually going to premiere off-Broadway uh, at the Atlantic Theater Company's Stage 2 in Manhattan um, this summer in mid-July. So it's a, this is like a, a dream, lifelong dream come true in a way that I could never have imagined. Um, but I'm just so grateful for the flexibility of my job to allow me to really pursue these passions um, you know, to their to the fullest. That's great. That's great. Well, congratulations great. on that. Thank you. That's that's, that's very exciting, and uh, yeah, we, we wish you great luck. It's with really that. exciting. Yeah, that's wonderful. Well, I, I thank you for joining us today. This has been really illuminating and uh, and a great uh, exploration of storytelling uh, in, a, in a in a new thought provoking avenue. I, I thank you very much. Wow. Thank you so much. It's been great fun. Great. Thank you. Well, thank you, Michael and Rena and Margot and Jonathan for a fascinating program. And thank you all, wherever you may be in the world, for being with us today at the Forum. To learn more about Margot Lightman's work as well as her best-selling books on storytelling, please visit margolightman.com. And to find out more about Dr. Adler's work, please go to jonathan-adler.com. Coming up on the next forum presentation will be a fascinating conversation between Pulitzer Prize winning journalist David Freed and author and evolutionary molecular biologist Dr. Beth Shapiro on the subject of manipulating nature in order to save it. Visit the forum's website at shforum.org for exact date and time. And finally, as we say goodbye, we'd like to thank the following people for their generosity in making the St. Helena Forum and its continuing programs possible. <music>